not only is it a divine opportunity, but a blessed, holy, joyful, wonderful privilege. I thank you, Father, that there are so many here in this hall who want to hear thy word. Father, we know that there are some all over this world who do want to hear and who do hear. And I thank you for the privilege of being used of the Holy Spirit to tell this good news. There's just nothing quite like being the messenger, the bearer of good tidings. It's a thrill, a joy. Not only have we rejoiced ourselves in that good news, but each time we have the opportunity of telling it, we rejoice and share the joy of those who hear it and hear it with their hearts. We share also the joy of him who gives it, even the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who is ever the bearer of good tidings. Thank you, Father, for sharing your joy with us, for allowing us to share the joy of those who hear with you and together enter into that rejoicing in heaven concerning the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to preach this morning in the power of the Holy Spirit, declaring once more the full counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. May the Holy Spirit be privileged to open this mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which we have been and are an ambassador in bonds. And I love you, Jesus, and I love you, Father. And I love you also, Holy Spirit of God, who first rolled the darkness back and enabled me to see for the first time in my life and oh, what a sight it was to behold. The true and living God revealed in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. Minister to our hearts in opening them that we might have ears to hear. May no man harden his heart if he should hear your voice. May today be the day of salvation in more than one way for each of us. In his precious name we pray. Amen. I want to take a couple of verses out of Second Corinthians and then we're going to the book of Exodus. The first verse in First Corinthians chapter 15 is taken from one of Paul's closing testimonies to the Corinthians. And he speaks of the gospel which he had preached to them, which they had received, verse 1, and wherein they stood or were standing at that time. The same gospel, he said, was the gospel by which they were saved. He had delivered to them, first of all, because he had also received it, and it had to do with how that Christ died for our sins, how he was buried, and how he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And what I want to lift out of these verses is the simple fact that the gospel that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, he saw by revelation in the Old Testament Scriptures. 
You'll have to remember that the New Testament did not exist when Paul made his statement concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ being according to the Scriptures. So he had reference to the Old Testament Scriptures, and in all of Paul's writings you will see his continual allusion to the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now the writers of the Old Testament had no revelation of Jesus Christ. They didn't understand Calvary. They didn't understand the mystery of God which was hidden with him before the foundation of the world. John the Baptist himself <clears throat> did not comprehend the cross when he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. But one thing he did comprehend, and one thing the Old Testament writers and the people of the Old Testament time did lay hold of, was God's way of salvation. Redemption through the blood, atonement by the blood. They understood this, and they knew God's way though they had no comprehension of that fullness of time when God would reveal his true Lamb in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it is a, a Paul who had once been a Saul of Tarsus, a rabbi, who had once studied the law in the Old Testament Scriptures at the feet of Gamaliel. It's a Paul enlightened who looks back now to the Old Testament Scriptures. A Paul whose eyes have been opened. A man who could now see what all of the prophets and the apostles before him could not see. A man who has had revealed to him the secret of the gospel which was hidden with God, also hidden in the Old Testament scriptures from the eyes of man, now revealed to the babes of this present time. So it's Paul looking back, and he must have asked himself the question many times, how blind can you be that I could not have seen it? Many are blind today in that they read the scriptures and they have no revelation of the gospel of grace as it is in Jesus Christ. So looking backward in 1 Corinthians 5 now, I just want to drop this in before we go back to Exodus. Speaking to the Corinthian assembly, he says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And here's the authority of the Holy Spirit through Paul for going back to the Old Testament Scriptures regarding the Passover, seeing the full picture of the good news we believe, how that Christ died for us, how that He was buried, and how that He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. I know you're familiar with the Passover. I don't know of a story in the Old Testament that tells more fully the story of life as I see it. And I want to tell it to you this morning. The nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. Egypt was the type of the world system. Israel was the type of God's people foreknown by him people whom he one day would deliver, who would come out of this darkness and of this bondage, the people that he was calling for his namesake. It was a long time before they knew that. They were in Egypt for more than 400 years. And the story of their sojourn in Egypt and their deliverance from Egypt 
is one of the most comprehensive views of life anywhere in the Old Testament. Before I give you that, I'd like to mention that we are dealing now with types. When I mention Egypt as a type of the world and Israel as a type of God's people, there's some great dangers in typology. All preachers should be careful when they use types. And some of the pitfalls involved in using types are simply these. First of all, types can be carried <clears throat> too far. You go too far with a type and then you're in trouble because the type breaks down. Another thing that's uh, a pitfall in using types is that you read more into the type than is really there. So you begin to invent doctrines from the types. Because you look at a type and you see a lot of things that aren't really there and you say, I see this, therefore it must be a doctrine. You cannot build doctrine from types. Types are like windows in a house. They let the light in. Paul in Hebrews says that types are only shadows, that which cast an image of the reality. And when you're dealing with types, you have to be careful not to turn the shadow into the reality. I've heard much preaching on types that left us only with the shadow, and the reality was never seen. Types break down after a certain period of time. You can only carry them so far. So in dealing with types, one of the things I asked the Holy Spirit for this morning was that we'd be left with our eyes fixed entirely upon the reality. And the reality is not the Passover lamb. The reality is not Egypt, and the reality is not Israel. The reality is Jesus, and that's the reality we must see. I said it was a picture of life. I find it in three phases in the story, and I'm, I'm anxious to really tell you about it. It's life as it is, first of all, before the cross. Your life as it was before Calvary. Before, at a strategic time, God sent a messenger with a word, as it says here, from the Lord. And you believed that word. So my life, at least, has had three parts. It had a part that was before I had heard this good news. Then my life had a part where I was brought to the good news. Life before Calvary, life at Calvary. And then my life has been filled with many, many experiences after Calvary. So we find life here in three phases. I want to talk to you about life as it is without Jesus. Life as it is without the knowledge of the gospel. What a true picture it is here. Let me give you my view of life without the gospel, as I see it here, and as my experience bears it up. First of all, I, I like to ask the question, how did these people get here? If they'd had any choice about where they were going to live, Egypt would have been number 10. But they were born there. There wasn't a thing they could do about their circumstances in life. They opened their eyes in the darkness of Egypt. And day by day, the wickedness, the awfulness of that place grew in its proportion as they learned more and more about life under Pharaoh and life in Egypt. There wasn't a thing that they could do, and there wasn't anything they could have said about where they were born. And so, regardless of how much men may fight 
against predestination as far as circumstances are concerned. They were born in circumstances over which they had no choice and over which they had no control. And they were there a long time. Long time before a messenger came with good news. Now, I will throw this in in case I forget it as we go along. It takes a lot of life, a lot of experience, a long time before in the wisdom of God we're ready for the revelation of the cross. I know that I must be criticized for this view, but I don't believe children can get saved until they get lost. How long it takes them to get lost, I do not know. You can't evangelize children by asking them catchy religious questions. You can't evangelize children and show them their need for the Savior by showing them picture books. It took Israel a long time before life had taken its toll. Many plagues, many hardships, before there was awakened in them a deep need to be delivered. They started out in life just like I did and just like you did, trying to cope with the reality of life, trying to handle life as we found it and as we discovered it. But as the days went by, they learned and we learned that life was more than we could cope with, more than we could handle. And if you'll read the story of Israel from the first chapter of Exodus down here until the 12th, you'll see that their life just the progression of their life is one of increasing trouble, increasing sorrow. And as they reach the apex, they are brought face to face with their helplessness in the sight of God, their need to be delivered by someone besides themselves, their need to be saved by somebody outside the land of Egypt who can exercise authority over those who bound them and over the awful, dreary, and dark and discouraging circumstances of their lives. Let me paint you a little picture of their life before the messenger came with the good news. They were under taskmasters from the day they were born, made to serve against their will, a system they neither believed in nor could profit from. Born into this world of affliction, their lives were filled with hard Labor. These are words I lifted right out of the story from the Scriptures. Bitterness was the diet of every day. Their lives were filled with bondage. And above it all was the awful specter of futility. Nothing had any purpose. There was no profit, no benefit, no return from anything that they did in their labors. Though they suffered and they worked, everything was in vain because the Scripture says that it was only that treasure cities might be built for Pharaoh. And they themselves reaped nothing. They were under the continual oppression of a system they could not fight and from which they could not escape. And as they viewed the future, it was dismal indeed because even their firstborn was destined to die. So they worked at the brick kilns and the slime and with a straw and with an increasing demand day by day upon them for more than they were able to produce. Less straw, more bricks was the order of every day. 
And even when they took courage and the thought that maybe they would have a child, and the child would have a better chance, they were faced with this bleak prospect that the firstborn of every couple would die. I don't know whether you ever remember running into this motto in a service or not. but it hung on many a barracks wall and it describes life without Jesus. And it goes like this. We are the unwilling, led by the unqualified, made to do the impossible for the benefit of the ungrateful. Would you like for me to repeat that? We are the unwilling led by the unqualified, made to do the impossible for the benefit of the ungrateful. This was the story of life in Egypt. And I believe it is the story of life here, apart from Jesus. Would you agree to that? Oh, these weren't the only problems that they had in life. Listen to this. On top of the oppression, on top of the affliction, on top of the bondage, on top of the awful futility of their lives, was added the daily plagues. The waters turning to blood. <laughs> this is no joke. Froggy land everywhere they looked. The atmosphere alive with lice and flies and disease and their own bodies afflicted with that disease and boils, and living in the midst of one storm after another with fire that ran across the face of the ground, like so often the lightnings of life do. And no matter what they planted and no matter what they labored for, if the treasure houses of Egypt didn't get it, the locusts came and ate it all. And besides that, there was darkness, awful darkness all over the land, these are things that happened while they were there, right? And what did they have to look forward to? They had to look forward to this. In the words of Moses, one more plague. And that one more plague was this. Death. Death as sure and as certain as any death could be. This was not death from the boils and not death from the flies and the lice and the fire and the blood. It was not death at the hands of the taskmasters or the hard labor or the bitterness of life or the futility of it all. It was sudden, swift death visited by God himself in judgment and judgment pronounced upon every man, woman, boy, and girl in that land. One more plague, death. And at this moment in time... And at this strategic point in their lives, a messenger arrived on the scene. I don't think he could have come any earlier because he tried, did he not? He couldn't have come any earlier because they weren't ready for a Savior. They weren't ready for a Deliverer because they hadn't seen life as it truly was apart from him. I can't help but comment on that, that it takes a lot of bumps and a lot of knocks. It takes a lot of storms and a lot of plagues. It takes a lot of heartbreak, a lot of bitterness, a lot of bondage. It takes a lot of living.
before you come to the end of yourself and you're ready to listen to a man from God who comes with a word from the Lord. I'm convinced that that's the number one problem in professing Christianity today is we have a multitude of people who have never been lost. And because they've never been lost, they are not saved. Never reverse that order. You can't get saved before you get lost. It doesn't fit. There's no need. It took a lot of years for Israel. It took a lot of time. They tried to save themselves. You know they did from day one in Egypt. You know that each man in his own way struck out at the system. Each man in his own way struck out against his taskmaster. There were times in their lives when they must have dreamed about it, talked about it, tried every philosophy that came along, but there was no escape. They were there. They were in darkness. They were in bondage. They were lost people. And one day a man came along by the name of Moses, and he said, I'll be your deliverer, but they were ready for him. And all he accomplished was killing an Egyptian and hiding him in the sand. And he could have killed an Egyptian a day for the rest of his life, and they would still have been in bondage, for no man could save them and no man could deliver them. And they hadn't seen this yet, and after a number of years they came to a point where the hopelessness of their situation appeared. When Moses, who came and tried and failed and disappeared again, was no longer there, they looked around and there was no man to help. And they cried out in their anguish and they cried out in their need. And God heard them and had heard them all along. And at a strategic moment of time in their lives, he sent a messenger. Not a man who would save them, a man who would tell them how they could be saved. Not a man who would deliver them himself with his own hand upon the Egyptian throat, as Moses once aspired to be, but a man who came now with words. He brings no sword, but he does. Sharper than any two-edged sword Pharaoh had ever seen. He came with a sword that had an edge that killed and an edge that gave life. This man comes now with a message, he says, from the Lord. And this is the message that he gave them. His text might well have been, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. That has to do with atonement. But there's more in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ than atonement. There is redemption. And that's different, you say, because redemption means simply to set free or to loose by the pain of a price. Atonement deals with God being just in dealing with the sinner by grace. The atonement has to do with declaring the righteousness of God in setting the, the sinner free. Atonement has to do with answering the holy law of God by the death of a substitute. Atonement has to do with paying the wages of sin. It has to do with satisfying the curse of the law for sin. Atonement has to do with God's justness, His righteousness in dealing with sin. But redemption has to do with setting the captive free while God remains just and a justifier of the ungodly who do not deserve to be free.
Let me say it again. Atonement deals with the righteousness of God, but redemption reflects his love and his mercy for the hopeless sinner in the futility of life and death without him. You see, God could have performed an atonement with benefits only accruing to himself. But when he sent the atoner and the atonement, who were both one and the same, he also sent the Redeemer. And that's what I see from my side. One who came to set me free. One who came to give me liberty. One who came to do for me what I could not do to break the bonds that would set me loose. So in the fullness of time, just as it was in your life and mine, just as this brother said this morning, God sent the messenger. He didn't count for anything. He has no part in all of this. This is the mysterious work of God. This is God doing what he willed to do from before the foundation of the world for these dear precious people. And the messenger came because he couldn't help himself. He'd been in the backside of the desert for 40 years. And he had to come. He had to come because he'd been to the burning bush. And that was not his problem. His problem was that the bush burned in him. He had some news he had to tell. He had something that he had to say. And he had the answer to every man's prayer in his pocket. And he had the fulfillment of every man's dream in his heart. And he had the vision that every man in that darkness longed for night after night. How could he sit any longer in the backside of the desert? And he came and brought his burning bush with him. Or the burning bush came and brought him with it. I don't know which. But when he came, he wasted no time getting people organized. And he wasted no time teaching them how to live. He wasted no time berating the government that had oppressed them. And he spent no time fighting the forces of evil around him. He came with twofold message, one of judgment to Egypt, and one of salvation to every man who would believe. And he busied himself declaring us one thing. Behold the Lamb of God. He will take away your sin in the sight of God. And he will take you away from sin by the redemption in that blood. When Moses came preaching, he came preaching the same message that John the Baptist preached in regards to the Lamb. And he came preaching the same message that Paul later preached and the same message that I have been preaching in this one spot here for many years. God's way of salvation by the substitutionary atonement of an innocent one who dies for others and by virtue of his life given up, his death experience, bound men become free. Lost people become saved People who live in darkness have the lights go on and they can see. And their life is changed and it will never be the same again, never. Life before Moses arrived with a message, life before personal knowledge of the Passover lamb was one dreary day after another just a continual repeat performance of the past. But you'll notice in this story in Exodus, and maybe I should read it, that all life changed 
at the message of the Passover lamb. Listen in chapter 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor take next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls and every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am God Almighty. Ain't good. That feel good on your heart. I'm God Almighty. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Isn't that a good passage? That's a good story. Let's go into it. Notice that he changed the entire calendar for these people when he gave this message. What do I need to say beyond the fact that life begins at Calvary? All of their life had been one long, boring, dreary, awful, futile experience until this good news came. God Almighty was going to do something about it. God Almighty had done something about it. And God Almighty, who had been hidden apparently from the experience of their life for more than 400 years, became a very great, wonderful reality. All of life changed at this message. They had a new calendar, a new year, a new month, a new day. It was the first day of the rest of their life. And all because of the message all because of what God had to say, and all because he said it through this messenger. The beginning of life. And the message Moses preached was the revelation of God's willingness, his love, his mercy, his kindness in saving these cursed people through the death of an innocent substitute one who would take the penalty of death upon himself 
and whose very shed blood would be to them the assurance and the pledge that they were freed forever from the life they had once known and from the future they had dreaded to enjoy the present they possessed. The Lamb came preaching, and the progressive revelation of him was, first of all, to point out that every man needed a lamb. And following the progressive revelation of a lamb, he lays this upon their hearts, that not any lamb will do. It must be the lamb, the lamb who had been separated from all of the sheep and all the goats. The Lamb who by divine choice and appointment had been set aside to die for the people. That Lamb, you know, was our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was not merely that he was set aside for 33 years, oh no. He walked in the evening of his setting aside in the presence of Israel for 33 years. But for an eternity past, he had been set aside in the mind and heart of God as the Lamb who would die for the sins of the world. Oh, yes, he was set aside, and for an eternity past, there in the secret place, in the council halls of eternity, he abode without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, this perfect, beautiful sacrifice, awaiting the fullness of time, awaiting a day waiting until the forces of evil and the darkness which they brought had reached its climax, waiting until God, who alone knew in his own wisdom when that should be, at a strategic moment would set him forth to be the propitiation for our sins, to declare his righteousness and to redeem us who were in bondage. And in the fullness of time, God revealed his blessed son in that role. You know, and I just drop this on for your own on your for your own personal Bible study. You can read the Gospels from beginning to end, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll see no revelation like this of Jesus. This revelation was given by Paul and through Paul. This revelation was made known to him by the blessed Lord Jesus himself, long after Jesus had come, appeared on the scene, died. Then Paul came and announced to Jew and Gentile alike how to take that precious blood and strike it on the doorposts of their home. It was him who announced, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And it was him who said, We are saved by grace, through faith. That none of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It was Paul who came declaring that the work was finished. Not to look forward to something that we must do, but to look backward to something that had been done. Not to look within to something that God was doing today, but to look backward to something which God had done in the eternity that lay before the foundation of the world, in the killing of his Son. Not to look around us nor within us for some suitable righteousness in which we can hide, but to look at the blood which becomes our perfect, complete, and total righteousness in the sight of God. 
Moses came preaching, and this is what he preached. Behold the Lamb of God. You need a lamb. Behold the Lamb. Take him and kill him. You must personally appropriate him. You must not only identify your sins with him, you must identify his death as yours. He must, therefore, become your lamb. Many people know they need a lamb. Some of these people know that Jesus is the lamb. Few people have ever made him their lamb. There's a difference. Take your lamb. That's personal. Personally appropriate him. All of Israel looked at him. And they said, there's the lamb. But there were some few who said, it's my lamb. He was sent for me. God's gift to me. I know he dies for the nation. I know he dies for the world. But all the good news is he died for me. You go to hell believing he died for the world, if that's all you believe. You go to hell believing that every man ought to have a Savior, if that's all you believe. You can die and go to hell believing that every man ought to have a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. You want to live, you'll not only have to find your need for that Savior through the plagues and the hardships of life, the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he brings home every futile illustration and experience of life to this reality. You can't make it here without Jesus, and you can't make it there without Jesus. You need him. You need to be saved. Not simply saved from the hardships of life, because we're not. Not simply saved from the darkness of the Egypt around us, saved from the bondage of the sin nature, saved from the plague and the curse of a law that will kill us, and saved from the wrath of an angry God whom we face in judgment when the one more plague comes, for he will surely visit us individually, collectively. And when he visits, he will look for one thing, blood. That's all. That's all. So you will have to personally appropriate. Oh, God provided a lamb by grace. The lamb will die by grace. The work will be finished by grace. But faith has to reach out and make it its very own. Faith has to lay hold of it. Faith has to say, it's my lamb. He appeared for me. He died for me. I have God's personal word to me that if I strike this blood, he will pass over me. And remember that when he announced that when he visited the land himself in judgment, that he would pass over those who were sheltered beneath the blood he gave them specific instructions as to where he would look. He refused to look anyplace else. If you let me explain it in little boy language, when God visited Egypt in judgment, he didn't have time to search the houses, and he didn't have time to look all over the property. He didn't have time to examine all the little places and the little things in everybody's life. He looked one place for one thing, 
He looked at the door, and that was enough. He didn't care what was inside the house or out. He didn't care what the house was made out of or it wasn't made out of. He looked at one thing, and that was the door to that house. And he looked for one thing, and that was the blood. And it was the blood of his lamb. That's all he looked for. Isn't that a simple message? Simple as can be. That's how simple salvation is. I don't know where to you know, start or stop with these types. They're beautiful. Let me ask you a personal question. How is it, how is it, with your heart door? I'm not talking about the door of your heart. I'm talking about your heart being the door to the whole man, whoever he is, whatever he is. Go discuss that with a psychologist or the psychiatrist. But don't act so darn dumb and say, I don't know what you're talking about when I talk about your heart. Because you do know. Is there blood on it? Is it Jesus' blood? Is that your only hope? This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus, all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Is that all there is? Uh, I know many people who have blood on the doorpost, but they've covered it up. It's covered up with their own works, it's covered up with their own righteousness, covered up with their own faithfulness. Covered up with a million and one things, and the death angel will never see it. He doesn't look for the blood plus other things, he looks for the blood. He doesn't promise that if he sees the blood among other things, he will pass over. I believe the promise implies that when I see the blood only, because the blood among other things signifies nothing. You can believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, and as long as you hold on to your self-righteous works, you die and go to hell. The death angel will never see the blood because you made the blood of none effect. And because it's been mixed with your unbelief, you'll perish as sure in two as two makes four. Why? Because the blood among things implies no faith in the Word of God. You say, well, it's all right if I do good works in it. Certainly it is. Just don't put them on the door. <laughs> well, it's all right if I join the church in it. Fine. Join anything you want to. Just don't nail it on the door. Well, it's all right if I live a, a holy life, is it? Yes. Just don't do it on the door. Do it inside as unto God. Just don't put it on the door and expect a death angel to take any note of it. He will not. Because the second you put one thing on that door besides blood, you've signed your destiny for hell. Believe that? Do you really believe that? That's true. Now, you have anything you want to in your house. And I will tell you something about the death angel. When he comes, he will not shake down your house to see how much leaven's still in it or how much leaven has been taken out of it. He'll never come any farther than the door. And he'll look at the heart. Whether you get the leaven out of your house or you don't get the leaven out of your house has nothing to do with whether the death angel passes over you or he doesn't. He looks for one thing. And I emphasize this word only, the blood only. I must emphasize it because if you post the blood plus anything, 
You've nullified the blood, counted an unholy thing, and said it wasn't able to do the job, and you've cast aspersions upon the efficacy of that blood, upon the veracity of God who says it's enough, and you've offered to him something additional to satisfy him, and something additional to pacify you. You want to draw a little boy picture? Here are two people standing here listening to the gospel. And the preacher makes it as clear as can be, as plain as day. This is the message of God. I don't have anything else to tell you. Hey, for the last two years I've been hounded and hassled by religious people who say, Why don't you preach a little law? Why don't you give us some standards for life? Why don't you preach against sins? Why don't you get to work purging the leaven out of the assembly and out of your own life and out of everybody else's life? I ain't in the leaven purging business. Why don't you set us up some rules and regulations? I'll tell you why. Because the message I believe and the message I preach is this simple. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And the second I add a single thing to that, that enhances your position with God, enhances your fellowship with God or with each other, or enhances the fellowship of the assembly or anything else, I've nullified the whole principle of grace and said I never did believe in the blood. You can do what you want to to me, but you'll never shut my mouth on that message. You'll never make me preach another. Never. You say, I don't have to preach to you. I don't have to preach to anybody. I heard the message preached, and I believe it. And if I must preach, I must preach that which I have received, and that by which I was saved, and wherein I stand. And this is it. Here's two people who hear the gospel down in Egypt land, and they go away after the service discussing the message and the messenger. And boy, that brother Moses, he wound up like a dollar watch this morning, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, he's a little radical. I mean, he's kind of fanatical. Always oh, coming out of the wilderness with some mad dissertation. What do you think about his message this morning, Well, I sure like to believe it. <laughs> Wouldn't it be good news if it were true? You know that if what Moses said is true, we don't have to work in the slime anymore. You know if what Moses says is true, we don't have to bow down to those taskmasters anymore. You know, if what Moses said is true, we don't have to make bricks anymore, and we don't have to live in darkness anymore, and we don't have to suffer from every plague and every boil and every disease and the frogs and the blood and the water and all this stuff in Egypt. We don't have to suffer anymore, and we don't have to live in darkness, and best of all, we don't have to fear anymore when the death angel might visit us unexpectedly at the midnight of our lives. Do you know that it would mean a whole new life to us if we believed this? You know that we wouldn't have to fear God or man or life or death again. Do you know that beginning today we could live in peace and settle down in our dwellings at rest if what Moses said is true? Don't you see it all hinges on the if what Moses said is true? What Moses said was what God said. So it hinges on this. If what God says is true, our works are ending. Our labor is over. Our toil is finished. The bitterness and the hardships are gone. And there's nothing but blessed rest and peace 
and a land of milk and honey ahead. If God meant what he said. So you see, it all goes back to the person of God and you. Many people have said, I do not believe what Herb preaches. You will never perish because you don't believe what Herb preaches. But you will perish if you do not believe what God preaches. You will perish. I don't have any doctrine. And I don't have any message. And I don't have anything to say to you. Not as a man. What I came here week after week saying was what God said. If you have problems with the message, it's with the one who gave it. Not the mouthpiece from which it came. So they're discussing the preacher and the, and the message, and they say, What do you think? One man says, I want to tell you what I think. I believe it. <laughs> it's good news. <laughs> Boy, he said, I sat there and listened to old Moses preach this morning. I didn't even, I lost sight of him. I didn't see the man. I didn't hear him. You know, I used to didn't like Moses, but I was sitting there listening that morning, and suddenly I didn't see the man, and I didn't see my neighbors, and I didn't see my friends. I didn't see anybody, anybody there but me and God. And God said to me, He said, Make this lamb yours, and you'll live. And I said, Lord, he's mine. I believe you. You sent him for me. I take him. Thank you for such a gracious gift. I believe it. Praise the Lord. I'm going home. I can't wait to get home and put that blood on the door. And he went home, and he just put blood all over the door, and he went down and sat down at his table. He was the happiest man in all the land. So his neighbor went home, and he said to his wife and to his kids, he said, you know, I went to hear this fanatic preach this morning, and I heard all this good news. And, you know, Brother John went with me, and he believed it. I mean, he just took it in hook, line, sinker, and he just rejoiced all over the place. And, and uh, I guess I kind of believe it, too. I mean, he believes it, I believe it, too. And it sure did sound authentic, and sure did sound right, and it sure did sound true. And I don't think Moses would lie. I think Moses is an honest man. I think he's a good man. And I think if Moses says so, Moses must believe it, too. And I think because Moses believes it and John believes it, and because I don't want to, you know, be different, I think I'll believe it. So his neighbor went home, and he said to his wife and to his kids, he said, you know, I went to hear this fanatic preach this morning, and I heard all this good news. And, you know, Brother John went with me, and, he believed it. I mean, he just took it in hook, line, sinker, and he's just rejoicing all over the place. And, and uh, I guess I kind of believe it, too. I mean, he believes it, I believe it, too. And it sure did sound authentic, and sure did sound right, and it sure did sound true. And I don't think Moses would lie. I think Moses is an honest man. I think he's a good man. And I think if Moses says so, Moses must believe it, too. And I think because Moses believes it and John believes it, and because I don't want to, you know, believe it. And so he goes home and and he gets a little blood and he dabs it on the door. Then he goes back in and he shuts the door and he sits down, but he don't have any peace. He don't have any peace because he never believed in the blood that's present. And he just sat there and he begins to worry. And he says, what time is it? I don't have much time left, you know. I believe in the blood, all right, but I want to be sure. There's one man said to me about water baptism. He said he can't hurt anything. <laughs> so he says a little while he said what time is it and his wife says you know it's about nine o'clock he said man alive midnight's sure coming down on me and, uh, and the closer midnight comes the more scared I get where's my safety deposit box 
You know, it's back in the bedroom on the bed. He goes back and he rummages around. She says, what are you getting out? Well, don't you remember this? When I got baptized, you know, they give me this paper here and sure can't hurt anything. I'm going, I'm going to take that out there and he gets a big old thumbtack and he puts it on the front door. And they said, where's, where's that certificate from the church showing that I went nine years and never missed a day of Sunday school? And he gets another big old thumbtack and he takes it out. Well, you don't hurt anything. Where's that certificate showing that I learned in the 23rd Psalm to be added to the Ten Commandments, books of the Bible, and the Lord's Prayer before I ever went to school? And they put big stars on And he goes out and he puts a big thumbtack through that and he nails that up there. And he goes back in. But the funny part is, he can't seem to rest. And he says, you know, I, I'm going to make up a statement here just in case I don't happen to be here when he comes by. And so he gets a paper and pencil and he writes at the top of a Dear Death Angel. I passed out 932 tracks last year. I called on 5,000 families personally, and I talked to 923 people personally about their souls. And old P.S. Death Angel. <laughs> I had my Bible every Sunday morning at church. I read a chapter every day. P.P.S.S. <laughs> I have tried diligently to confess all my sins daily. You know what this sounds like? It is a perfect description of the self-righteous man's life, and it is a perfect description of a little ignorant child's letter to Santa Claus. Because all one and the same thing, that the good God just can't pass me by on Christmas Eve if he sees how good I've been. And oh, if you and all who hear this message anywhere in the world could lay hold of the proportion of such a sin as that against God, trampling under your feet the precious blood of Christ, counting this blood and this covenant whereby you were sanctified as an unholy thing, a common thing, common with works and common with self-righteousness and common with the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament economy and common with religion and common with being good and being moral and keeping the law and living by your own little rules and regulations and ethics. If you knew what a horrible sin that was in the sight of God, you wouldn't wonder why he said, I will recompense. If you think the man who ignored the law of Moses was in trouble and died under two or three witnesses, hey, you haven't seen anything until you fall into the hands of an angry God. You fall into the hands of a God who's had you spit on the blood of his son, wipe your feet! On the righteousness he offered you free by grace. You wish the plagues and the frogs and the bloody water would drown you and devour you and the locusts would carry you away before hell ends for you. You better take another look at your door. Because some of you have got it strung up with Christmas lights and wreaths and works and things. And down there in the corner there's a little speck of blood on it so that if I come around or anybody else, you can say, sure, I believe in the blood of Christ, but, but, you either believe in the life and the blood of Christ, period, or you don't believe anything. You don't believe anything. But you see, we have been taught in a religious world around us that it is all right to believe in the blood and other things. As one man said to me when I spoke to him about the blood, he said, Oh, I believe in God and Jesus and things like that. And daily he added other things like that to the list of things that he believed in the hope that when the midnight hour came, 
the death angel would take notice that he believed in a lot of things, and he believed in a lot of good things. Things will not save you. Good, bad, or indifferent things will not save you. Good things will not save you, and bad things will not damn you. Self-righteousness will not condemn you, and self-righteousness will not save you. The blood will save you, because that blood is the witness to God that sin and sins have been dealt with righteously. Atonement has been made in a holy place, and now he is at liberty by his love and his mercy and his grace to set a captive free without cost. Isn't that good news? You know any good news better than that? There isn't any. Everything else called good news, gospel, pales in the light of that. So here he is every five minutes, running out the door with another thumbtack. Read about it in the book of Hebrews. Paul doesn't use little boy language like that. You know why he didn't write that story I just told you in the book of Hebrews? Because in his day he didn't have thumbtacks. <laughs> So he couldn't write about it. But in the book of Hebrews, he did write about it, only he didn't tell us about the thumbtacks. He said that these people never have their conscience purged from dead works to serve the true and living God. So they're wrapped up continually with the coming and going to the tabernacle, bringing some new sacrifice every day and fastening it on the door, some new offering every day to the Lord. And they sit in the nighttime in their homes and they tremble with fear down inside in the little man. And they listen to the screams outside in Egypt and they peer out into the darkness and they say, I hope, I hope, I hope that when the death angel comes, he'll see enough on the door of my heart that he will pass over. I tell you, the death angel will visit you with a swift hand. And across the street was his neighbor. I see on his door there's nothing there. But I can hear him singing. And he's singing, this is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. All my peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God looked on the blood from without. He looked on it from within. Both of their eyes and their hearts and their faces met in that blessed place of communion where the blood was struck. And he says to his wife, it's so quiet in here, it's so peaceful. Don't you feel safe? Oh, it's wonderful. And supposing he gets a phone call from this neighbor across the street. And he says, how you doing? It's fine, how you doing? Oh, that's so good, I'm all shook up. Had everything all straightened out a little while ago. And then I sat down and the lights went out on me again. Now listen, what's the matter? Oh, I got to looking at myself and I got to looking at my sin and I got to looking at my sins and I got to thinking about all the hardships of life and boy, I want to tell you, the lights went out and I went down for the count and I don't think I'm going to make it. Can you come over and comfort me? You just as well spit on Niagara Falls for effect as to think you can go over there and quiet that man down. You believe that? His problem is simple. He has never found any rest in the blood of Jesus. That's why he sleeps worried and sleeps scared and walks worried and walks scared. And that's why he's always looking at my door to see what I got on it so he can put something like it on his.
But here's the man. He said, how do you feel? I said, I feel fine. You're not worried? No. What's to worry about? We're not talking about the things of life now. We're talking about salvation. Well, aren't you afraid that you'll commit some sin and the death angel will visit you? Oh, no. You must not have heard the message. The message doesn't have to do with committing sins or not committing sins. The message has to do with a substitute dying for our sins. Yeah, but, but you know, I mean, don't you think that death angel will come in your house and look in closets? Well, I'll tell you, if he does, my God lied to Moses and he lied to me. Because he said he wouldn't do anything but pass over if he saw the blood. He's not going to inspect my house for termites. Because whether I have termites or I don't have termites has nothing to do with whether I'm saved or lost. What he's going to look for is the blood. I can't say that simple enough. I put kiss on the top of my notes as I was studying. You know that means keep it simple, stupid. And that's what I keep remembering while I'm preaching. Keep it simple, stupid. That's simple. That's simple. Just the blood. Nobody will put the blood there unless they believe in it and leave it there alone. But boy, I'm going to tell you, you sit around and you listen to them Egyptians talk and you listen to some of them Israelites talk and every now and then you know the panic kind of comes over you and you, you start rummaging around the dresser drawer and you're a little tempted to go out there with something else and pin it on the door. But before you get to the door, the question of the Holy Spirit burns like fire in your bones. And it says, brother, you touched that door one time and you just confessed to the whole world and to God that you never did believe in the blood. I wondered lately why I'm so tired. I'm not tired physically. And I'm not tired mentally. And I'm not tired emotionally. But boy, there's times when I get so tired spiritually, I don't think I can make it. And one day the Lord showed me, said, no wonder you're wrestling every day. Man can't wrestle 24 hours a day without being tired. And you're wrestling with principalities and powers. And I used to think that was fighting communists, and I used to think it was fighting federal government, and I used to think it was trying to get prayer back in the churches, and I used to think it was a number of other things that we were engaged in fighting in. I'll tell you what we're wrestling with every day. Read the end of that passage. I wanted to preach on this this morning. Lord wouldn't let me. Read the end of this passage and you'll see that all the wiles of Satan, all the strategies of the devil, every fiery dart, every trap, every snare, every temptation has one object in view, one end. And that is to shut the mouth of the man who would open it boldly, make known the mystery of the gospel of grace. The attack of demons, the attack of Satan, the attack of the principalities and powers is not against the man. He can't destroy me. Not a hair of my head can perish. It's not against the work. It's not against the assembly. It's not against the tape ministry. It's not against organization. It's not against us collectively or individually. The strategy of Satan is designed for one thing, and that's to close the mouth of the man who would dare preach grace. And so the attack every day is for him to give an inch so that he can take a mile. You know, in, in the Vietnam War, we were told by the State Department that the foreign policy of the United States demanded this war and that it was really in the interest of national security that it was being fought. And they reasoned this way, that if we don't fight the communists in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, we'll have to meet them in the cornfields of Iowa. Remember hearing that? Or on the shores of California. And as I tell you again, I, don't, uh, I am not going to politically discuss whether they were right or wrong. 
personally, I never believed a word of it. But anyway, uh, the idea was all right. The idea was all right. Because they reasoned thus. If we give one inch anywhere in the world, we will eventually surrender our whole nation, our whole way of life, and ourselves. So it is with the law. If you keep the law perfectly and offend in one point, you're guilty of all it. You've wiped out the whole principle of law because you keep one law and break another. The breaking of one makes you a lawbreaker. It has nothing to do with how many laws you've broken. Same applies to grace. And that's why I fight and wrestle all day long in this battle. Do you know why? Nobody ever attacks me for preaching salvation by grace. Nobody around here ever attacks me or mentions a single word adversely to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. We all believe in the blood. And we all believe it's without any human works or merits on our part. We all believe that God has finished the work and there is nothing to do. But I am attacked daily by those who say, yes, we believe in salvation by grace, but... Grace can't apply anyplace else in your life, only at the cross when you get saved. And I have to stand because if I give one inch on the principle of grace, I've destroyed it all. If I give one inch, I've confessed to you and God I never believed in grace to start with. And if I give one inch, you will keep on coming to drive me clear back to the cross of Calvary and wipe out salvation by grace because you never believed in it anyway. I've started to the door many times to thumbtack something else up. I've made many a trip. I've worn the carpet out from my bedroom to the front door with thumbtacks in my hands. But I've never yet got there. And I tell you this by way of prophecy. I never will. I cannot touch that door. The blood is posted for me. If I go to hell for trusting in the righteousness which God has imputed to me by faith, we will all be in hell. Now modify it. There won't be any hell because there won't be any God to put us there. The day God denies himself, he abdicates, he quits the throne, and we'll have to look for another God. This God is immutable in that to which he commits himself. His veracity is above question. He is faithful to himself. He cannot deny himself. And he has said to me, and he has said through me to you, I will Pass over you when I see the blood. Not until. It's the reason so many people can't find peace. It's the reason they can't find any rest in regards to salvation. They know God has never passed over them. They know that their lives are shrouded over by the hovering presence of the death angel. They know that every time they walk out the door, they're abiding under the wrath of God, even though their door may be decorated to suit them and others. The peace of God can't come into the heart of a man, not by any works he may do, excepting by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit who gifts us with faith 
can bring its fruit. And that's rest. And that's peace. And that's total trust in simply what God has said. Oh, what a good place it was that night. <laughs> so quiet in there. You know how quiet it was? Not even the dogs were barking. He said, not even a dog shall raise his voice against you this night. <laughs> it was so quiet in there. It was just peaceful. How you doing in there? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, how do you know the death angel won't come and he'll look and that's not enough? Oh, I'm not worried about it. God said it. And I believe it. And that settles it. God cannot lie. God will not lie. But, 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 but. Please take your butt across the street. I do not need it here. Take it over there and I'll tell you what to do with it. Thumbtack it on the door. Well, aren't you worried about it? No, I'm not worried about it. Aren't you afraid God will change his mind? No, he can't change his mind. If he could change his mind, I would worry about it. But this is something God can't do. Maybe God lied to you. Oh, no, he's never lied to anyone. And what's more important, if he told something it wasn't in his heart to do and thought he had to do it for the benefit of the one he told it to, he wouldn't be God. He does it because he can't deny himself. He don't have to live with he don't have to live with me the rest of eternity. No, he can dispose of me, but he has to live with himself. And one of God's philosophies is, be true to thyself. And he lives by it. And every morning when God gets up, he looks in the mirror. And he said, it's not important. What other men see in me, what's important is what I see in myself. And I am truth. And I am honesty. And I am integrity. And I am love. And I am mercy. And I am righteousness. And I am holiness. And I am justice. And I am sovereign. And by God, I will be that forever. Isn't that good enough? That's where it all hinges, you see, right here, on whether God's Word can be believed or it can't be believed. And this poor man sitting in his house that night, he's not worried, he has peace. Everything is quiet, the dogs are not barking, he's done worry about the darkness because he has light in his dwelling. And he sees the world like others don't see the world. He sees himself like others don't see himself. He sees God like others don't see God. He sees Moses like other men don't see Moses. I'll tell you about this guy. He has peace. He's not afraid of anything outside, and he's not afraid of anything inside. And Satan can't get on with him because Satan comes and knocks on the door, and as soon as he sees that blood, he's scared. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. And the man who rests beneath the shelter of the blood knows this. I'm saved by grace. Grace alone. That blood tells me that it was nothing I did. Nothing I can do. But it was something that somebody else has already done. The blood on my door tells me that it's finished. The blood on my door tells me that the promise of God rests on something that can't be changed. As I see the blood, I know it was by grace. And the only thing that makes me any different from anybody else in this Egypt land 
is that blood on my door. You know, a saved man sits behind his door in peace and rest, but he never forgets that the only difference between him and every other man out there is the blood that's posted on his door. My, how the Christian world has forgotten it. Professing Christians, five minutes after they make their little speech about accepting Christ as their Savior, suddenly become so righteous, so holy, so good, that they can't tolerate anybody in the world. They don't want to associate with anybody anymore because they might be contaminated and defiled. Because suddenly now they're separated from the world, and suddenly they're so holy and they're so righteous, they'll get their garments all smeared up if they mess around with them unsaved people out there. Oh, I tell you, you know, the saved man is comfortable around unsaved people. Because he realizes that the only difference between them is the blood. There isn't a saved man on earth who's any more holy after he's saved than he is before, or any more godly, or any more righteous. You're just as ungodly, just as unrighteous, just as unholy as you were the day before you were saved. We grow in grace, but we don't grow into God. The new man is born already in the likeness of God, blessed with a perfect righteousness, a holiness that's not his own. But his rotten flesh is just the same as it was the day before. And self-righteousness is easily measured by the people who act, talk, and think otherwise. Well, I say this about the, the promise of God, and then we have one more thing we've got to talk about, because it has to do with the assembly, and it has to do with the tape land out there, it has to do with our homes and our families. Let me say this first. The promise of God was simply this. The blood will be to you a token. The word token means pledge and assurance. Who is the pledge and the assurance from? It's from God to me. He said, I'll give you this blood as a pledge. I'll give it to you as an assurance. I'll give it to you as a token. When I see that blood, I will pass over you. And all rest in this, dear people, is what God sees in the blood, not what I see in it. It's what he understands about it, not what I understand about it. What he comprehends, not what I comprehend. What he could explain, not what I can explain. Oh, I'm so glad we're not saved by comprehension. I'm glad we're not saved by understanding. I'm glad we're not saved by learning. I'm glad we're not saved by the intellect, because most of us die go to hell because we're all about half retarded. I'm glad we're saved by grace, and that through simple faith, a faith that none of us have to conjure up or work up because it is the gift of God. All we have to do is receive it. And therefore, anybody can have it and anybody can be saved who wants to be saved by simply taking God at His word. God will help you take Him at His word. You can just rest right there and be safe. And I want to tell you this. It's not what I see in the blood. It's not what theologians see in the blood. It's not what you see in the blood. Not what others see in the blood. It's what God sees in it. And I don't know what He sees in it. I know some of what He sees in it. I know He sees satisfaction for a divine law. I know He sees righteousness declared. I know He sees complete satisfaction propitiation from the sin and the sins of the world. I know He looks upon that blood and He sees what I can never see because He can comprehend what I can't comprehend. Go visit an automobile accident somewhere and there's the blood in the street. 
And here stands a man weeping. You say, what do you see when you see the blood? He said, it's the blood of my son. He sees something I'll never see. Does he not? He comprehends something I'll never comprehend. He lays hold of something I could never lay hold of. I can say, I know how you feel, but I lie when I say that. God only knows what he feels when he sees the blood. God only knows what he sees when he sees the blood. Only God can look into the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat and see with an eternity that goes way back yonder and when it goes way out yonder and see that all of his dreams, all of his hopes, all of his will, all of his pleasure is wrapped up in that life that was laid down, now signified by that blood. God only knows what he feels when he sees the blood. God only knows what he sees when he sees the blood. Only God can look into the blood, sprinkle on the mercy seat and see with an eternity that goes way back yonder and when it goes way out yonder and see in all of his dreams, all of his hopes, all of his will, all of his pleasure is wrapped up in that life that was laid down, now signified by that blood. Oh, I rest in this. God will see whatever he needs to see. When he sees the blood. Won't he? Oh, yes. When I see the blood, I will. Oh, you back something up by the will of God, and it's the same as done. I will. I will. Okay, now, we talked about life before the cross, and we talked about life at the cross. Now, let's talk about life after the cross. <clears throat> This is found here when it says, They shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread. You see, the lambs already died. They've already posted the blood, and now they're sitting there behind the blood-sprinkled door. And what are they doing? They're feasting. They're feasting. And what are they feasting on? They're feasting on the roast lamb. And here's what I want to tell you. Listen carefully. The death they witnessed out yonder becomes the food by which they live. The food that sustains them while they're waiting. How do they get their strength? They get it from feasting on the roast lamb. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's life. And here they sit behind the blood-sprinkled door feasting. Now listen carefully. As we know later, because the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was established, the order of, of the uh, celebration in years to follow was the slain of the Passover lamb, then the feast. The unleavened bread, you see, he says here, you will eat it with unleavened bread, and you will eat it with bitter herbs. Leaven, as you know in the Scriptures, is a type of sin. And in the old economy, when the Feast of the Unleavened Bread began, before that feast, every Jew made a diligent search of his house. And anything that had leaven in it was cast out. He destroyed any leaven he could find in his house. Because when he sat down to eat the Feast of the Passover, he wanted to do so without any leaven in his house so that he could feast on bread that was without leaven. And you know, I am amazed at people who imagine that the unleavened bread upon which we feast is the unleavened bread of our own righteousness. 
Having searched out the sin in our lives, we now become unleavened bread upon which we feast. God help us to hold such a bloody Catholic view as that. You just as well go back to transubstantiation and get down on your knees and stick your tongue out and lick up the wafers some priest sticks on them. As to believe that you can clean out all the leaven in your life so you can piece of, be a piece of unleavened bread upon which all of us can feast and have fellowship. I want to tell you something. Life after the cross is filled with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. We feast on the roast lamb amidst the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. But listen carefully to me. Our fellowship, our communion, our feasting together as believers, whether it's in our home or whether it's in this hall or whether it's by tape messages, centers on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. When I think of the houses all over the world today where fellowship is based on how much leaven has been removed or how much leaven still remains. When I think of individuals that I know as professing Christians who insist upon searching my house for leaven. You want to have fellowship with me? You want to have fellowship with other believers? Let me tell you what to do. Clean your own house. Look for your own leaven. Purge your own lump. Something that should be done. Don't clean my house. Leave that to me and Jesus. Leave that to me and the Holy Spirit. Don't be the judge of whether I come to this fellowship on Sunday morning with all the leaven purged out of my house or not. You better leave that work to the Holy Spirit who knows better than you know. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 7, where he brings us into context, says, But here's how you fellowship, here's how you have communion, here's how you get together. Dude, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. But never forget that when I come to this hall or when I meet with you in fellowship, I have to do it with sincerity in regards to the truth I know. I have to walk in the light that has been revealed to me, and I must not hinder you from walking in the light that's revealed to you. You purge your house, I'll purge mine. Don't ever try to make the purging of the leaven a basis of fellowship, because that's the mark of the mystery of iniquity. Second thing, notice their fellowship did not revolve around the bitter herbs. You know what the bitter herbs are, or bitter herbs, whichever way you prefer. I know houses today right here in this area whose fellowship revolves around the bitter herbs. I've observed this for years. Bitter herbs. Herbs were, you know, the fruit of the cursed earth. I think they represent the sorrows, the afflictions, the troubles of life. Think how many religious houses today base their fellowship on communion and each other's troubles. Everybody has trouble. You have trouble, I have trouble. You have sorrows, I have sorrows. You have griefs, I have griefs. I can't bear yours and you can't bear mine. We have one who's already borne them. If you try to make our fellowship based upon our mutual troubles, we will do nothing but feast in the bitter herbs all the time. I know many Christians who just live on a diet of bitter herbs 
And all the time they're eating the bitter herbs, they're occupied with doing nothing but picking the leaven out of the bread. That's why some of them aren't here this morning. They like the bread, but they just don't like the leaven they have to pick out of it all the time. Pick the leaven out of your own life and leave mine alone. You deal with your bitter herbs the best way you can. Let me deal with mine the way I know how to do it. You know what to do with all your bitter herbs in life? You know what to do with all of your unleavened bread or leavened bread or whatever? I'll tell you what to do with it. Do with it exactly what he says here. When the morning comes, don't let any of it remain until the morning. Throw it all in the fire. You know where the fire is? It's the cross. If you found a whole sack full of leaven in my life, throw it in the fire. That's where it was to begin with, and that's where it belongs, and that's where it will always be. You found some bitter herbs in your life, and you found some bitter herbs in my life, I'll tell you what will enable you to keep on discovering bitter herbs without becoming bitter. Don't eat them. Throw them in the fire. Throw them in the fire. Because here, you see, God lays down the, uh, the rules for the way we feast. The unity that we experience is all in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the personal appropriation of the blood which each of us have posted on the doorpost of our house. Once we've posted that blood, you see, when I put it on the door, you can see it. But that's all you can see. You can't see anything about the leaven. That's inside the house. You can't see how many bitter herbs I eat because that's inside the house, and that's where it ought to remain until I am enabled to cast it in the fire. Don't bring it to the assembly for crying out loud, and don't take it in personal fellowship to each other. Somebody started not long ago about their troubles, and I said, I just want to make a statement. <laughs> you have trouble, but they're your troubles. That doesn't mean, you know, I don't want them. They're not mine. It isn't that. It's that I can't solve them. I can't help you. If I could, I'd be Jesus. No, I can't solve your problem. I can't answer your question. I can't relieve your life of bitter herbs. And I sure as the world am not going to take on the ministry of searching out the leaven in your house. If we feast together, let us feast together in this. Both of us are sheltered by the blood. Both of us have found rest behind the blood and beneath that blood. Both of us have believed God, and that makes us brothers. I know, John says, that we have passed from death unto life because we love those of the same womb. You know, uh, he says something else. Do not eat of this lamb Raw. Raw. That's uncooked. That is meat that has been spared by the fire. God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. There are many people who get together and try to eat a lamb that is raw. Oh, He suffered on the cross, and He began to die on the cross, and the knife did touch Him at the cross, but the fire never touched Him. Oh, yes, He suffered in His body physically, and He died a physical death, but that's it, and that pays for my sin. Physical death does not pay for your sin, dear people. Spiritual death pays for your sin. And if Jesus did not go to the hell that you deserve, you have no substitute, and you will end up there. 
I don't know where your communion is. And I don't know what you see in that blood, but this you better understand with your heart. That all the fire there is for you has already burned upon your Savior. And all the hell there is for you has also claimed your Savior. And all the outer darkness that awaits you was His at the cross of Calvary. Leave the details to God. But this you better know. There is no fellowship around a raw lamb. No fellowship around a raw lamb. Neither is there fellowship around a lamb sodden with water. Isn't that what God says? A lamb sodden with water. What does that mean? It means a boiled lamb. It means one cooked in water. God will have no water. God will have no thing between His lamb and the fire. Nothing. If the fire doesn't touch Him, there is no atonement made. If the fire doesn't devour Him, no redemption possible. Do not commemorate the death of the lamb by feasting on a lamb sodden with water. And I think of the houses all over the world today where men have a lamb sodden with the waters of baptism. They don't believe in the blood at all, nor do they believe in the Lamb, nor do they have redemption, nor is there an atonement that, that is theirs. Be it water baptism, be it good works, be it your prayers, be it your faithfulness, the confession of your sins, your holy living, your moral standards or whatever, you put one thing between yourself and the fire, but the Lamb, and you perish. You perish. No lamb sodden with water. And here's what you do. Roast with fire his head and his legs and the pertinence thereof. What does that mean? All the head represents the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his legs have something to do with his walk upon this earth. Oh, my brethren, the saved man has no mix-up in his heart about the wisdom, about the perfect walk of the Lord Jesus, the personal righteousness of Christ under the law, having anything to do with delivering him from the fire. God spared him not. God burned his legs and God burned his head. God spared him not and wiped him out. His earthly life counted for nothing in the atonement. It was his eternal life which he gave. It was his soul which was made an offering for my sin. You see that? Oh, yeah. It was all cast in the fire. And don't leave anything behind. Throw it all in the fire. Now, I close with this observation, which may take at least two to three minutes to give. <laughs> this observation... How were they to pass their time after Calvary became a reality in their lives? Feasting on the Lamb. Feasting with each other. Their unity, their fellowship, their oneness, call it anything you want to, was in the Lamb alone. I see people in the Passover, back in Egypt now in my little mind's eye, I see neighbors meeting over the roast lamb and couldn't speak to each other a moment before. I see families that were divided in fellowship over the roast lamb. 
I see Jew and Gentile who had a natural enmity for each other just a moment before. And when her eyes meet in the Passover lamb, the enmity is all gone. Why? Because the love of God does something about it. Do you understand that? The love of God does something about it. You can't love that lamb like I love that lamb without there being some kind of love between us. You can't have fellowship in that lamb with the Father as I have fellowship in that lamb with the Father without having some kind of fellowship with me. Your love for Jesus and my love for Jesus is His love for each other. It's our love for each other. Nothing else than foolish is the man who imagines that Christian love rests on any other foundation than that. So here's the way you eat it. Here's the way you live every day. Do so with your travel garments on. Because as of that night, we became pilgrims and strangers. And we were destined to leave this god-awful place. Do so with your loins girt. Have your travel garments on. Have the, separate, the uh, preparation of the gospel of peace. Those sandals on your feet. And you know the sandals that they put on their feet that night never wore out for 40 years? And you know that our sandals are not going to wear out through all eternity. Eat this meal this morning with your travel garments on, with your sandals on your feet, and above all, take your staff in your hand, your walking stick, that upon which you lean along the way. Let it be Jesus or you sure fall and break your arm. Let it be Jesus. There's no one else fit to lean on. Remember how it was said of Jacob that after the angel wrestled with him that he was crippled, wounded in his thigh, never able to trust his flesh and his strength again. He worshipped leaning on his staff. Isn't that a wonderful life? He worshipped leaning on his staff. Who was his staff? He was Jesus. You can lean on him. He won't go out from under you. You can lean on him. Be with your travel garments on, with your walking shoes on your feet, and take your walking stick in your hand and eat it with haste, that is, with a sense of urgency, in the realization that at any moment the call will go out and we will rise up together and march away from this awful place. Isn't that good news? Oh, that means that, and he ends up by saying, eat it in haste as it is the Lord's Passover. What was the Passover? Why, it was that moment, that night. And this is what he said to me through that. Live every moment. It is the Lord's moment. Today is the day. Not tomorrow, not someday. It's now. Pass every moment by saying, this is the Lord's day. This is the Lord's moment. This is His time. I'm ready. I'm ready. How's it going to happen? One of these days, one of these moments, perhaps this one, our Moses, that's Jesus, who now is seated at the right hand of God with the rod of God in his hand. That rod that brought blessing to the children of Israel will become a rod of iron to the earth. That rod is in his hand. And he's waiting and ready. 
And one of these days, the father will say, now, son, now. And just as he held him back and kept him up for an eternity past until a strategic moment of time, he is now keeping up our blessed land until a strategic moment of time. And all of a sudden, the father will say, it's now. And our Moses will rise from his seat as he gave in one of his parables. He will rise to the door. What door? The door that's sprinkled with blood. And he will take the rod of God in his hand and he will smite the waters of the Red Sea. And a strong wind will come from the east. The Holy Spirit of God will hold back the waters of death and we'll cross on dry land to the other side and there won't be nothing but milk and honey ahead. So, same Moses that delivered him the night of the Passover is the same Moses going to take him across the Red Sea. Now you see why I said, I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land.